Welcome to the Story Talks Back. Almost everything that we remember, think about, or imagine is a story. Stories entertain us, inform us, and even define us. They have upsides, and they have downsides. This podcast explores the power of story in every aspect of our lives. I'm Dave Stanton. Thank you for joining us. Poet, memoirist, and audio writer Garrett Hongo was born in Volcano, Hawaii, and grew up in Kahuku and in Los Angeles. Hongo's poetry collections are Yellow Light, The River of Heaven, which received the Lamont Poetry Prize and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and Coral Road. His most recent book is 2022's The Perfect Sound, a memoir in stereo. His other nonfiction includes The Mirror Diary and Volcano, a memoir of Hawaii. Hongo's work has been recognized with fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, Fulbright Program in Italy, and the National Endowment for the Arts. In 2022, he received the Aiken Taylor Award for a Lifetime Achievement in Poetry. He lives in Eugene, Oregon, where he is Distinguished Professor of Creative Writing at the University of Oregon. Well, Garrett Hongo, it's great to welcome you to the Story Talks Back. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me tonight. My pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, so I, I think we're going to start with a, a reading of one of your poems. Would you mind uh, reading one for us? Sure. Here's a poem from uh, my last book, book uh, my last book of poems called Coral Road. And it's a poem remembering my grandfather and being a cook mm. um, in the kitchen. It was actually the cafe, my grandmother's cafe on Kamehameha Highway in Haula and how he made this stew and how I looked up to him. It's called Chicken Heka which is a Hawaiian specialty, actually. It's not completely Japanese. Thwak, thwak, thwak was the rhythmic chopping of steel on butcher block near the sink. Kubota wielding the cleaver's long, narrow blade like it was a machete cutting cane, bringing it along the back and legs of the raw carcass in quick piston-like strikes. He was making heka, a whole chicken cooked with bamboo shoots sliced thin as sashimi. Fresh carrots and diagonal slivers like orange doubloons and half circles of cut round onions that tessellated and turned clear in a bubbling pot. He'd make a broth of bonito flakes and black shoyu, then grab all he'd cut the way I'd seen him handle octopus in tin buckets near the sea scooping them in a basket of his hands, tentacles drooping like roots from a purple screwpine tree, and dropping them in a waiting pot. And if they cried, Kubota didn't care, wind furling the big trouser legs of his khaki pants. It was the ocean that gave off a rattling sigh of small stones and regret. I cooking, he would say, and not the pink bits of chicken flesh nor white flecks of bone that spattered his glasses and spotted the newspapered backsplash along the sinks and carving table, 
would stay him from the karma of his task. Aroma of blood and marrow, bright symbol of a steel's pot lid, dipper of chiave and spoon from the horn of a goat. He made his humble kitchen a spectacle of sighs and smells. Petite green armies of chopped celery sliding off the cutting board. He'd take a bundle of bean threads, dry as graveyard sand, white as ashes of incense, twisting it like a rag in his hands until the strands sheared from his quick torque. Shirataki, he'd say, waterfall we call long rice. But unlike steamed rice, it turned golden in the slick of the stew, fattened in flavors of blended fish and fowl. Winters, when the Oregon rains can damp my soul, I try to make it this way still and take the Viking cleaver down from its place, a household god over the sink, holding it up to the light so I can see the sheen of its edge against the outer dark. And I swing it so flesh and fat spatter me awake to all the heroic good of his will. That was great. Thank you. Uh, that's that's actually a good place to start because I always like to ask, um, who were the storytellers in your past? Um, the storytellers who influenced you, uh, who whose stories really helped shape you. Can you think of anyone like that? My family was silent. There was a canceling of our history because of World War II and the tragedies of um, imprisonment, internment, and war, and the stupidity of the leadership of the younger generations who were left behind, who adopted brutal ways to repress the expression of our experiences. So there is a kind of cutoff from the first two generations in Hawaii and their experience to mine, which is fourth generation, because the third imposed a kind of um, tacit silencing. My grandfather, who was imprisoned during World War II by the Department of Justice, and who was suspected of espionage, and who was completely innocent, as we all know, spoke about it to me quietly after dinner, every night from when I was 12. And he told me the stories of his incarceration in Arizona, his arrest by the FBI on December 8th. And my family said he was imagining it, that he was senile, tiny night, uh, uh, light in the head. Um, and they felt his arrest and incarceration was a disgrace, not an injustice, but a disgrace that he brought upon the family. And um, that's how they felt about it. Um, my father, who was in an army, in infantrymen during World War II, if fighting in Italy, never talk, talked about it. Um, my grandmother never talked about what she had to do to keep the family going. Um, my unintelligent uncles bragged about how they took over the family and saved it when they were teenagers, which was total bullshit. So I was told lies, and I was... The history my grandfather brought to me was falsified or declared false when I was young. But it affected me very deeply as I grew 
and I imagine the former lives in my family. I honored my grandfather. Um, I might have been the only one. I was the oldest grandchild. His own children, um, to me, didn't respect him. My father did. My father and my grandfather had a very special relationship, a jocular, joshing, affectionate one. They would play cards after dinner at night, uh, Hanafuda, Japanese rummy. And I, I would sit next to them just to hear them talk. Later in life, the stories came to me from elders like Wakako Yamauchi, the short story writer and playwright from California, who adopted me as her deshi, as her student, her pupil, and um, told me the stories of the Nisei on the mainland before the war and the uh, internment. She was a teenager during the internment. And she told me stories about coming back from internment. And uh, she was a great storyteller in my life, um, giving me the mainland history of Japanese. But the other storytellers were also Stanley Crouch, the ja African-American jazz critic, who was a great talker I met when I was 14 at the Watts Writers Workshop, and then who was at Pomona College as a professor of literature when I was a student there in the late 60s, early 70s. And my first great poetry teacher, Bert Myers, the um, Jewish-American poet from LA, who witnessed the... Uh, day of the evacuation of Japanese. And that's the first thing he spoke about when he met me. He, he said, I know why you're so pissed off. Your family was in those camps. And in all my life before then, the only thing about the camps that I heard back from the culture, whether white, Japanese, or anything else, was A, it didn't happen. B, we don't talk about it. But Bert tapped my shoulder and said, if you want to write about that, I'm going to help you. Um, so those are the storytellers early in my life. Uh, a Jewish American, an African American, my grandmother, my grandfather, Japanese American, Wakako Yamauchi, another Japanese American. Those were the storytellers. I didn't have like Ernest Gaines did that circle of aunts who gather on the porch in Mississippi and tell lies and mule tales and stories. But when I hit my late 20s, my aunts, my grandmother's younger sisters, started telling me stories of the islands and the old days on the plantations. They were not completely truthful. They were like, like um, Zora Neale Hurston says about mule stories. There are narratives, there are myths about life on the plantation and about individuals and the relationship with the bosses like the Lunas and um, railroad, the, um, there were these portable railroads that would transfer the cane and things that happened in the family which were quite brutal. And I remember after my auntie Sawako, she was taking me to the Kahuku graveyard um, where all the Japanese sugarcane laborers were buried it's on a sandy promontory sticking out into the sea she told me all these stories and it was like i was in yaknapatafa county in faulkner's world there were these incredible 
brutal and heroic stories at once. And she sort of was very somber when she told them to me. And some of them were members of my own family and they were shocking. And I also understood the difficulties and prohibitions of the races early on. Because, you know, back on Kahuka Plantation, there were these uh, different camps, a camp for the Portuguese, a camp for the Chinese, a camp for the Filipino, and a camp for the Japanese. And also the white bosses lived in another section. But, you know, erotics, erotics being what they were, there were always surreptitious relationships. And they told me stories like that. They also told me these stories of my great-grandmother being gifted children. She had um, 11 children of her own, but she raised 15. And there were these incredible stories. I asked my grandmother, why did that happen? They, I can't tell some of the stories now, but there's a story about her being told to go find a baby underneath these pine trees. There are ironwood trees in Kahuku. So she went out at night and waited, and she brought a baby back. It was a Native Hawaiian child. They called Pine Boy, Matsu. And um, he died in a cane fire um, when he was about 20. Um, my grandmother said she was given children because all of them survive. You know, and when my grandmother said that, it was just so powerful. I mean, you don't even think that child won't survive. But of course, in those days, it wasn't a sure thing. You know, um, so the flavor of how things were said also entered my soul. You dig? And, uh, but it took a long time. It wasn't this paradisal childhood of transmission. It was given through difficulty. And what do you, I mean, can you sort of verbalize how the suppression of the stories for so long affected your relationship to storytelling and to sense of your own voice? Well, because there was nothing. Um, you know, when I grew up in L.A., I, I was a child in Hawaii, born in Hawaii, and grew through childhood in Hawaii. But then in late childhood, elementary school, I, we were moved to L.A., and then because my brother and I were getting a little too rugged, they sent us back for a year, you know, because all of a sudden we had to toughen up, you know, in South Central L.A., you know. And uh, they sent us back and I got more of an affection for Hawaii and learning of Hawaiian ways. Then we came back and we were back in Gardena, which is largely Japanese American, but right next to Compton, California, which is largely African-American. And we went to junior high and high school with black kids. Like a one third of our high school was black. A third was Japanese. Third was white. And I, I sort of grew up just in it, you know, doing black dances, listening to Motown and R&B, going to those Japanese bun dances in the summer, dating Japanese girls or trying to, and then playing football, blah, blah, blah. It was all the same to me. I didn't, segregate myself off you know i was a big scandal when i started listening to white music you know like buffalo springfield was a huge scandal that i was listening to these cowboys you know um and uh uh you know because everyone was listening to the impressions and you know that was the approved music for japanese kids um 
Um, when I got to college, you know, everybody had something special, you know, like my friend Sandra Ott, the Basque scholar now, she knew all these stories of Pittsburgh and her family and the lineage and the generations and the touring of Europe. And she knew Mark Twain's Innocence Abroad. They had all this and all of it was theirs. And it just emanated from them in talking, you know. And then my friend Carlos Garcia, he had all this Chicano culture. Frank Gonzalez, the founder of Los Lobos, you know. Uh, Francisco, you know, he would talk about Islos and shit. You know, he would just, and he always had the rhythm and he could play music like anything. And then we couldn't play, he'd just sing it or whistle it. And everybody had something just emanating from their chests, you know. Um, and I didn't have that. Um, I couldn't speak from anything that I felt was like mine. I mean, I was studying, you know, medieval literature in English. I was studying anthropology. I was studying art history. You know, it was all terrific. But, you know, who the fuck are you? What do you represent? And I started asking myself that. So at one point, I think it might have been my sophomore year, I invented the story based on my grandfather that he kept a diary as a shopkeeper on the North Shore of Oahu. And he, he wrote it in Sosho, uh, Japanese calligraphy. And it was about his daily life. And I just, and I remember thinking that it was in a ledger, like for bookkeeping, that I found it as a child when I was um, like five or six. And I just told myself this story uh, so that I have something. And I kind of believed it, you know, like I had this book and that I was trying to train myself to read it, you know, because I was studying Japanese. I didn't grow up speaking it. I had to learn it in college and then later in Japan. And then I would translate it and it would be this great book. And I just had it and I told myself these things. And then from having told myself this made up story about my ancestor's diary, I started feeling like I had something, um, a voice, uh, a history, a kind of purchase on America, on American soil, and that this is who we were. Because none of the things that are known now from books, documentaries, oral histories, that wasn't available back when I was in college. And the only thing that was going on was people said, shut the fuck up. White people didn't want to know about the internment camps, or they denied they existed. Uh, Japanese people didn't talk about it because it was a shame to them. So we were really cut off, you know, from acknowledging our own history. And to, in order to try to become a writer of some dedication, clarity, and even exuberance, I had to make shit up. So I made it up and uh, got me through my last years of college and a year in Japan and my first year of grad school in Japanese literature at Michigan. And then I sort of lost, I lost it like a friend who just strips away from you, you know, in my essay called the mirror diary, I talk about, it's like having someone's hand as you swim to the reef. And then as you get there, the current pulls them away into deeper water and you can no longer keep holding the hand. And that's what kind of happened with that invented book because other things started happening, like the scholarship about Japanese American history, 
um, the acknowledgement of the internment. Writers like Wakako and Momoko Iko and Isaya Yamamoto and Toshio Mori, these first Japanese American pioneers of, of writing in English, their works were being resurrected. And I started meeting them and, and uh, you know, the history of the Kanyaku Imin, the first immigrant cane workers to Hawaii started coming out. I met Franklin Oda, who just passed away a week ago. And he sent me his, by correspondence his course on Asian American studies that he was teaching at UCLA, mimeographed pages of lessons. And I would prepare those lessons and we would talk Friday nights um, on the telephone, you know, or by correspondence and letters. He would send me his exams and I would write my the exam and send them back. I remember he called me up and said, hey, you're cheating or what? Because he's from Hawaii too. He's from Kalihi, Princeton PhD. I go, what do you mean? What are you talking? He goes, hey, everything correct. I said, yeah. So how do you know all the answers? Hey, as smart as why. Yeah, we shall see. <laughs> you know, and uh, he took time to uh, give me free lessons and cultivate me. And hey, I'm 19 goddamn years old. And this guy, professor at UCLA, I'm a student in Claremont take his time to uh, bring me up. So I started meeting people like that, you know? Yeah. And it seems, um, you know, talking about all this suppression and shame, you know, it seems like we're in a moment where there's more receptivity to stories of other experiences and other cultures. It's harder to shut up anymore, you know? Um, part of it was because of um, the civil rights movement, the uh, black power movement, and the Asian American movement on the West Coast that established ethnic studies and Asian American studies, and the insistence by the people in my generation that there be acknowledgement. And people at San Francisco State, UCLA, Berkeley went on strike. You know, they made the universities create ethnic studies and Asian American studies, sponsored scholars, you know, who started publishing the history um, and the encouragement and the power of social activism broadened the moment of reception for these things. But it wasn't just out of nothing. It was out of desire, in some ways, resentment and anger from the social activists who then pioneered these these breakthroughs. And then the scholars, you know, like um, Franklin Odo, um, Gary Okihiro, Ron Takaki, you know, who just dedicated themselves to bringing all this into not only documentation, but scholarship and then narration, you know? Um, the the receptivity, I think, was not without resentment. I don't think people wanted to acknowledge the history. Even when I was in high, uh, college, I remember my professors sort of imping me and said, so you're Asian-American now, huh? You know, because I was a pretty good student, and they thought that that was a, an ancillary or a pen. Um, a supplementary interest, and uh, they denigrated it. Um, they would say things like, oh, you have no idea what they said. You know, in graduate school, a 
extraordinary professor who was brilliant on American poetry said to me, so Gook literature at a faculty reception. Um, there are many moments like this. Um, it was not embraced, but I think the weight of the will of, um, let's say, people of color, um, the new generations, and the jouissance that they brought to the political, the layer of political activism that opened the field, enhanced the receptivity. But I'm not going to say, you know, that I hear a, a lot of love and a lot of receptivity. Um, I think that the attitude is still, this is a marginal history, a minimal people, and it ain't cool, it ain't it ain't the big thing, you know. Despite greatness like Maxine Hong Kingston, um, my high school classmate, Karen Teyamashita. Um, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> You know, we still got to bust a move on these on this kind of re uh, resistance. You know, what people forget is like, early on, man, Stanley Crouch and Quincy Troop were my teachers too. You know? And later, it was Robert Hayden. It was the African-American poets who put their hands on my shoulder and said, we're going to help you out. We're going to get you there. You know, Michael Harper later on. Well, with the exception of a few like Charles Wright. So, you know, on the one hand, which seems like we're, there's some progress towards receptivity. And then, you know, at the same time, there's this huge backsliding that's happening uh, in terms hey, I've of- I've been the only one in the room a million times. I can't tell you how many times I've been the only one in the room and I hear what people say. You have no idea. I'm not a happy camper about it. You know, I've been in a room where there are two other people of color who were afraid what the white people were thinking about them. And they voted for against people of color, getting the prize, the fellowship or the sponsorship. It's all there. I'm sorry, I'm, it's not, I'm not painting a pretty picture here. I, I think now that there's been so much recent social activism, people are kind of running scared, you know, Black Lives Matter and all that. I think people are on notice more about it. And so they want to show their liberal colors, but it's surficial. You know, Ishmael Reed said, uh, what did he say? Diversity, equity, and inclusion is the new white centrism. You know what I mean? Uh uh, uh. <laughs> we ain't having it, you know, we ain't having it. I mean, I went to this meeting at the University of Oregon with the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee who was going to instruct us on how to be more inclusive. And here I am on uh, on the creative writing faculty with Matt Johnson, you know, the novelist Matt Johnson. And they're, they're telling us what the hell to do, you know. It's ridiculous. And then all three members of the committee were not of color. So the jobs for diversity are given to these people. They didn't even know what Matt and I had been up to. You know, they didn't even know. You know, I said something about Foucault and Fanon, and this one guy says to me, I'm really happy you mentioned Fanon, 
condescending SOB. You know, that's the kind of way it goes. It's still about authority and dominance over even issues of diversity. You see the dynamic? They didn't even bother to know what I've done or what Matt Johnson has done in our careers. They just assumed. So I'm sorry. No, you don't. I'm not looking for any particular answer. I mean, I'm, uh, but I, I mean, you're still operating within, you know, structures and publishing world, academic worlds that are still dominated by, you know, white voices, white perceptions. Well, I've been very um, lucky in my relationships with um, New York Publishing from early on. I felt the strongest receptivity in New York among all my interactions with systems, social, political, academic, or publishing. I've been very lucky from very early on. Um, it was an easy relationship with, with New York Publishing for me from the beginning. Um, I had trouble with academic presses, and that's why I left and I went and I said, I knocked on doors in New York and got myself a New York publisher. Um, they seem the most enlightened people I've met, frankly, in uh, in all my career. It was very easy talking to them. It still is easy. Um, I found very intelligent people. Um, they also know that my skills are not simply about history, ethnicity, and I don't come from a highly um, activist perspective. I come from a committed perspective and that I also do work well, my editor, Harry Ford, who it was the editor at Athenaeum for so long, you know, he said, I don't know what you're doing with the language. They can't hear. All they can see is the word Asian American. And they repeat it ad infinitum. They don't hear the poetry. And, you know, uh, I loved him for saying that. Not to say um, I didn't want to be known as an Asian American poet, but the racial category, the ethnic category, the historical category does not completely define me either. I feel much the same as my teacher, Robert Hayden. I'm not going to say I just want to be known as a poet. No, but I want people to attend to the poetry. You know? Sure. So, I, you know, I mean... I have to note that you're, you've written a lot of great poetry and you've also written a lot of great prose. You know, your, your most recent book is a memoir about your relationship to sound and music and audio technology. Um, so I wonder how uh, doing so much prose writing may have affected uh, your view of storytelling or your use of storytelling in your poetry how does that all mix together? Well, you know, long narrative poetry and even discursive poetry has fallen out of um, normative practice. Before World War II, there were like these American epics or narratives. Even Robinson Jefferson wrote many around Big Sur, uh, Stephen St. Vincent Benet, you know. Um, and the American epic was much on the mind. It turned away from narration into lyricism with Hart Crane and Pound in a way. And narrative left. You know, even with William Carlos Williams, he really went to the collage 
and he was most gifted to me and to my ear with lyric poetry. He, narrative really wasn't cultivated in his poetics. They were in his novels. They were in his stories, and they're wonderful. They were in his nonfiction. In the American Grain is superb. One of the inspirations for Maxine Hong Kingston's The Woman Warrior, by the way. Um, there were this sort of droppings theory of literature in the way that there's this droppings theory of philosophy that things get paired away. So all you're left is with logic, you know, and positivism in Anglo phone philosophy. We're talking about, you know, uh, Strauss and Quine, Wittgenstein even is influenced German, but Austrian, but still positivism. Let's see. Same thing happened to poetry. It moved away and focused on the shorter lyric. Now, Robert Hayden wrote The Middle Passage about The Middle Passage. That was an anomalous occurrence in many ways, but he had he says he was in, influenced by Stephen St. Vincent Benet, um, uh, John Brown's body, you know, but that kind of thing is extraordinarily rare. When I found all this history from my aunties that was unwritten, um, and I started writing longer narrations, even most of them dramatic monologues in my second book, in the in the voices of shopkeepers and fishermen, washerwomen, kind of like eclogues, you know, or sort of like um, idols of theocritus you dig. I, I, I didn't think poems, even in my own style, could contain everything I needed to say. I felt like I needed to say. So I invented that book, Volcano. Um, um, this idea of writing about the rainforest, the lava fields, the mechanism of the volcano itself, and my family history on the Big Island, and specifically in that place, that village of Volcano in Hawaii, and that general store my grandfather started, my paternal grandfather, and my father's tragedies, you know. And I thought, okay, I can't do this in poetry. I'm After I finished The River of Heaven, I said, I'm going to do this big book. Partly because my father and my grandfather died within a month of each other. And I lost um, their presence, their confidence, which is to say that they took care of Hawaii in the house for me. I could always have it if they're around. And when they were dead, I thought, oh, my God. I gotta, I gotta get it back. I gotta make it myself. I gotta. So I went back and I lived in Hawaii, you know, for three and a half years just to be more like them. And that's when I started writing the book. Um, in writing that book, though, I found that um, I didn't want to write like a report, a reportage. I looked at a lot of books of nonfiction and I despised them. Um, they were like transparent prose, you know, and they were like. Trains, planes, and automobiles, you know, like, what's the point? You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? I felt like, uh, what's that guy, the comedian Steve Martin next to uh, John Candy on the plane. Candy launches into this long story, and Martin says, what's the point? I'm reading all these prose writers, and they're very famous and great prose writers. They had no anji, they had no flavor, they had no dynamic machine of storytelling. So I went back to all the stuff I really like. Walden, Moby Dick, right? Um, Hawthorne, Emerson. The prose had flavor. They had 
grit and gristle. And then the sound of Jap Japanese, classical Japanese from the 14th century, Yoshida Kenko, his Tsure Zure Gusa, translated as the Essays in Idleness by Donald Keene. And the way the prose sounded in my head and um, Hojoki by Kama no Chome, all these Japanese sounds uh, and even Kawabata's prose and Mishima's prose, early Mishima in uh, Shino Ase, The Sound of Ways, not later Mishima, or early Mishima. And I wanted to create a kind of bubbling pot of language. And uh, that's what Volcanic became. But it would address these subjects, you know. And But the prose is not transparent. It makes you sing. It's like when I first read Milton in Paradise Lost, after a while, you know, you kind of get the music and the music kind of lifts you like a rolling tide, you know. And that's the effect I wanted. And um, I remember when I finally exposed the book to my editor, Sonny Mehta at Kanop, you know, a Sikh. And he only edited like six people. He edited Salman Rushdie, V.S. Naipaul, Edward Saeed, Michael Ondaatje, Catherine Hepburn, and me. And he looked, we were in the Bonaventure Hotel. He wanted to edit the book in two days. So he did a like head-to-head -head two days. And he's drinking his Irish whiskey and eating pistachio nuts. And then he, he looked at me and I'm still, you know, a little guy. I mean, I was nobody, you know. I mean, I am nobody, but I mean, you know, I was a middle young middle-aged poet with only two books, and I turned this big book into him, and he says, Garrett, now I know why you've taken so long to write this book. It's not prose, is it? The model, too, was William Wordsworth, The Prelude, The Growth of a Poet's Mind. And I think I'm always writing that book, no matter what I do, even in the last one, The Perfect Sound, which has two narratives. One is my sort of stereo hobby and my obsession with audio equipment and getting the best so I can hear opera. And the other is the track of my development as a poet, you know, uh, my autobiography. Um, you know, so audiences are always bewildered about my books, my prose books, because, hey, that's great about your family and your teenage years and how you met Robert Hayden. And But what's all this stuff about the audio stuff, the equipment? I mean, all that technology. And then the audiophiles go, well, I thought I was going to learn a lot about stereo systems, but all the book is about you. And that's what happened with Volcano. I remember Philip Levine saying to me, oh, all that stuff about your family is incredible. So moving. But what's all this about rocks and plants? You know, um, for me, those are the, they're the the universe of storytelling takes on discursive information, narration, and also lyricism. But my point is not separating them. And my prose work has allowed me to be more expansive like that, stylistically but also in the mode of, of writing, like I say, carrying a lot of information. You know, I tell the story of the development of the goddamn phonograph record. 
I talk about Charles Crow in Le Chat Noir in Paris inventing the idea of the phonograph as he's writing his Simbolis poems, you know. I mean, it wasn't Edison. He built the first one, but Charles Crow thought of it, you know, a poet. And then um, I go all the way to like John Fahey's recording of St. Louis Blues, you know, and 1948 when Yehudi, um, no, no, when uh, Nathan Milstein recorded um, the, uh, was it the, the uh, Beethoven Violin Concerto? Was that right? And then uh, uh, Clifford Curzon recorded the Beethoven Piano Concerto as the first um, microgroove records, you know, LP, long play. And I'm, I like doing it that way. Um, but I don't know anyone else much. You know, there's a, a few prose writers I admire like that, though. You know, James McManus, who wrote the book on uh, poker. Positively Fifth Street, fantastic book. Hell of a storyteller. Oh boy. Um, Yunta Huang, you know, Charlie Chan. He writes about the real Charlie Chan, the Honolulu detective. Those guys are fantastic. Um, I do admire them. Yeah. One thing that comes up in different ways in, in Volcano and Perfect Sound to me is this idea of objects as stories um like in the volcano you talk about those horse bones and how important they were to you as kind of a marker uh, of your your memory and then the bones are stolen oh oh oh! you know that's a story i borrow from scott mamaday ah okay. iowa story it's a mamaday story ah, i can catch I talk that. about um how memories are removed. It's another um, narrative that explains what happens to our soul, uh, our collective soul, when our stories are taken from us, as they were yeah. taken from the Kiowa. Um, and Mamaday's point as a writer, he writes this in uh, The Way to Rainy Mountain, pieces of it, and also in The Names, you know, his two memoir in a way. But he's better, I mean, he's better. He's much grander when I've heard him tell it orally. I've heard him tell that story orally. And it's about the theft of the Kiowa horse. The bones are kept in a barn, and young Scott Mamaday plays in the barnyard every day with his grandmother cooking in the kitchen, his grandfather out in the fields. And he goes into the barn one day, which is cooler, and he opens a big box that's on the side of the barn, one of those almost like a basement box, you know, he throws the lid back and there are these huge white bones in there. Some of them have darkened. And then he asks his grandmother, he's five or six, what are those things, those bones in the, in the barn? And she says, those are the bones of the Kiowa horse. And he says, well, why are they there? Because we're keeping them to remember how to be Kiowa. And then she says, um, tells him the story of the way to Rainy Mountain that this was the horse who would lead them from Oklahoma to North Dakota, back to North Dakota, to the Devil's Tower there, which is Rainy Mountain, which is the origin of the Kiowa people. It's where they came from the heavens down to earth, you know, tunnel of a tree trunk and all that. It's a Kiowa tale. And then on, he's back 
another summer, he's a little older, seven or eight or nine. And the first thing he does is he runs through the barnyard and he goes to the barn and he looks and he opens the box and the bones are gone. And he goes to his grandmother and he says, what happened to the bones of the coyote horse? And she someone stole them. And then young Mamadi asks, why would they do that? And she says, so we would not know how to be Kiowa. Well, this is a story of the dispossession of the culture of indigenous people and how acculturation, history, mainstreaming, which was a policy of the BIA, of course, you know that. But this happened to all of us with immigration. They wanted to make us into an idea of what I would call inert Americans, right? Um, and they thought that would be the way to build a culture and, and a nation. But I don't think so. Um, I think we're ultimately a confederacy of not the South, but let's say a political conf confederacy that knits together like a quilt in agreement and treaty and mutual respect, but we keep our ways. Um, some people really want to separate and create enclave cultures that are independent. Now, that is a way to preserve culture and to teach it, but I don't think that is a way to share it. I think that our job today, my job today, is to share. This is what Robert Hayden was like. Um, he wrote his poems to share Black history with everybody, not just with other African-Americans, to share it with me. He taught me John Keats's poetry. My seminar with him was on John Keats. You know, um, and people hated him for that. You know, um, the black arts movement, Haki Madhubuti and Amiri Baraka condemned him for praising the white man. You dig? Hey, come on, come on. Um, we all got to be better than that um, in all kinds of ways. We got to desegregate. We got to desegregate. We can't resegregate. And uh, when you talk about my involvement with all these different things, my job was to get into institutions and push change. You know, and that's what I've tried to do. I mean, I'm very proud my students are Chang Ray Lee, Major Jackson, Julia Kushinsi Dasbach, Keisha Kuypers, right? Alicia Pir Mohammed, Jamie Ringlet. It's everybody. Luis Montoya, Daniel Chacon, everybody, you know. Um, when, I, when I came here, people expected me just to support uh, young poets of color. Like the first two admits were two white poets, two white Southerners. And the English department went, whoa, what the hell are you doing, Garrett? You know, you can't be four white people. Well, this is the problem. That's the problem. You know, um, when I was on a committee to admit uh, Chang Ray Lee, they didn't like him, the committee in English, and even the grad student on the committee, because he was coming from Wall Street. He went to Yale and Phillips Exeter. He had 1,600 on his GREs. You know, Garrett, he's not a real minority. I said, what makes you think I'm looking at him only like that? I think this is a great candidate. 
So it's like you know, a dub double inverted prejudice. <laughs> it's everywhere, man. It's everywhere. I also love in the perfect sound where you say Whitman means Coltrane to me. That's, That's right. A great statement. And it seems related to what we were just talking about. Yeah, because I just didn't get Whitman when I was an undergraduate. And Bert Myers, my poetry teacher, said, you know, you're you're a scandal. You know, I said, the guy is corny to me, man. He sounds like Stevie Wonder. Something's got a hold of my toe. What the hell's that? You know, I was reading York Trackle and Rilke, you know, Heinrich Heine and these fine lyric poets, you know, of Rapture. And then, what is this stuff about? Oh, I, oh, you Camarado. And I thought, God, it's like a cheering in a football stadium. And then I didn't get Langston Hughes either. Stanley Crutch sat me down on a brick wall by the swimming pool. He says, I'm going to school you, young man. And and he says, you're going to read Langston, and you're going to come back, and we're going to talk. And I said, man, the dude is corny, man. He goes, you know, I hope you enjoy your own ignorance, because nobody else does. That's where I was, you know. Um, Dickinson, same thing. So I'm riding around L.A., I'm driving to Little Tokyo to pick up my fellowship check. I got a fellowship to go to Japan, and they were given to me in one check. You dig? And it was at the Sumitomo Bank in downtown LA, in J-Town, Japanese town. So I go, and I'm driving my mom's Chevy 2, you know, because that's the, that's what I had. And it's a three-speed. And I'm driving through these hills in LA, right? You know, downtown LA, you go, you get off the freeway and you go to go down these hills and then up a hill, Hill Street, and then down again. And then Coltrane comes on the radio. I had the FM Takego. And it was Equinox by John Coltrane. Da 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 out of the cradle endlessly rocking, out of the mockingbird's throat. Oh, I get it. That's why Whitman means Coltrane and Coltrane means Whitman, that they're both working with theme and variation, anaphora, you dig, uh, and a rhythm and a chant and a kind of solemn exuberance. It's a different, it's not just exuberant, it's a solemn exuberance. And I got it. You talked before about um, how to get people or, or people writing about things that, that really matter, you know, and people writing about things that are kind of trivial. I mean, are we, is there a way to encourage writing about things that really matter? Uh, is there a way to push people in that direction? As a teacher, I don't do that. I don't assign what people should do. Um, I teach sometimes poems, you know, like yesterday I was teaching accentuals to my graduate seminar. I taught syllabics the first week and we were going, starting with Beowulf and we went to the seafarer, you know, and on and on and on and to pound and to, um, oh yeah, I don't, you know, and we went to um, September 1st, 1939 by W.H. Auden. 
that was sort of the last poem. Great poem of political awareness and responsible maturity and solemnity, which includes the everyday, but also the concerns of global events. Yeah. Of course, he's looking about, thinking about World War II. He's thinking about Poland. He's thinking about the Nazis. He's thinking about the driving of the Jews. You dig? Um, weighty things. But it's in this incredible poetry that he derives from having heard Yeats's Easter 1916, right? Um, that they're this solemn stuff. But in teaching poetic meter, I taught the Auden, but I also taught you know, uh, poems by, um, I don't know, I, I can't, Donald Justice, uh, John Crow Ransom, Southern Confederate racist son of a bitch. Um, uh, I don't believe in the exclusion thing, you know. I also don't believe in prescriptive teaching. Um, mostly it's encouragement. Uh, now, I have a very good friend, Viet Nguyen, who teaches a seminar on topicality in politics and literature. And it's explicit in a statement. And he's, you know, he takes on works by like Ta-Nehisi Coates and uh, James Baldwin. I'm trying to think of his list. You know, it's a very famous list now. Um, but I don't, I guess I'm reluctant to do that. Um, um, There's something in me that wants to meet people at their level, in a way, as a teacher, you know? I don't like announcing, or, and I think also I don't like prideful um, uh, advocacy. I've seen too much of it, you know? So I guess, you know, I mean, some of my activist friends in Asian America say, you're a moderate, which is not a compliment, you know. And they call me the dean of Asian American poetry, you know, and that's not a compliment either. Or they call me a legacy poet. Because my position hasn't been to rush the battlements, you know. I've gone inside of institutions and tried to make change. You know, I've been on the committees, you know, you can name them, and I've been on them all. Lots of times the only one, you know, and uh, I got kind of tired of it. So I've been declining a lot of the involvements. I mean, one time I just put my foot down and said to a committee chair, I'm not going to be the only one for you, man. I quit unless you put another person of color on the committee. So I'm not just talking to myself. She so all can laugh at me, you know, and he was cool. He was very cool, and he appointed Gary Soto. And the first, the prize we awarded was to a white poet. <laughs> you know. Um, it's been a funny life like that. That part of my life has been very strange, and, uh, and I won't say happy. Well, I, you've really made, you know... It's been a great pleasure reading your works and a great pleasure speaking to you. I, I feel like we could talk for another hour, but I'm, I don't want to take up your whole evening. So thank you so much, Garrett. Well, thank you for asking me to speak. 
um, it's rare that I can be so candid. I love it. Really love it. Be cool, man. The Story Talks Back is produced and hosted by Dave Stanton. The music you're hearing now was written and performed by Christopher Daydream. The theme music at the beginning of our show is an excerpt from Play by Merlin Twelfthoven, performed by Kronos Quartet as part of their 50 for the Future series. Please subscribe to The Story Talks Back on Podbean, and check us out on Instagram. See you next time.